should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California for Monday, August 17th, 2015. This, by the way, was the week in which Hillary Clinton joked with Iowans that she loves her new Snapchat account because, quote, those messages disappear all by themselves, unquote. <laughs> so thanks for joining us here in San Francisco. I'm John Zipperer, your host for Week to Week and the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. I would like to mention that we are heading back to Silicon Valley next month for our next Week to Week. It's going to be on Tuesday, September 15th. We hope you will join us for that program. It'll be right before the Republican candidates gather for their next big debate, so it'll be fun. Also, shortly before that Week to Week, we're going to have our first candidate of the presidential uh, season uh, speaking at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. It's going to be Dr. Ben Carson, who uh, you might have seen is currently in second place and the GOP. So that's going to be Tuesday, September 8th. And your laughter, I know. I, no <laughs> way. You agree with those, Nobody those predicted polls. that. You're lying if you think you predicted that's not true. Okay. So on today's program, we are going to talk about some new developments in homeless policy and politics, the latest from the rollicking 2016 presidential race, California's difficult road politics as well as some environmental issues in the Golden State, as well as quite a bit more local, state, and national news. So, of course, the Commonwealth Club of California is a place for people of a very wide range of views, so any opinions that are expressed here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now let's meet our panels for today. I'm going to start on the far end of the stage with Melissa griffin Kane. She's a contributor to CBS San Francisco as well as a San Francisco Magazine. She's an attorney, and she's on Twitter at MelissaCane1. Next to her is Chuck Nevius, longtime columnist with the, San excuse me, with the San Francisco Chronicle. He's on Twitter at CWNevius. And next to me is Carson Bruno, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he specializes in California's political and policy landscape. And he's on Twitter at 
Carson J. F. Bruno. So please use the question cards that are spread throughout the room to write down any questions. I will, as always, try to ask as many as possible during this program. Now on to our round table. Um, I wanted to start off with homelessness, and that is kind of one of those perennial issues or eternal issues, unfortunately. But it, it's in the news, I don't know, don't know if you saw this story, but recently the US Justice Department filed a notice that it that states its belief that cities cannot ban people from sleeping in public spaces. Uh, part of the comment was, quote, sleeping is a life-sustaining activity. In other words, it must occur at some time in some place, and therefore cities can't uh, prevent people from doing so in public. Now, cities have been trying many different strategies with homelessness over the years from, you remember the Giuliani years, you know, the get tough policy in New York, so-called, uh, the Utah city that provided housing for all of its homeless people. And then there's San Francisco, which tries to do a mixture of services. Um, Melissa, you're our legal eagle on this panel. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell us about the Justice Department's uh, thinking and, and w will it have any effect or was that just kind of a, a statement in the wind? Well, to be to be fair, whoa, I don't want to yell at you. Um, to, to be clear, this is a case that goes back to 2009. It, it originates in Idaho. Boise, Idaho had this ordinance that prohibited people from sleeping and on any public property at any time. So I want to understand that that's a distinction from what we have in San Francisco, where what we ban is sitting and lying on public sidewalks between 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. So ideally, it, it allows for or maybe not ideally, but it could allow for someone to sleep on a public sidewalk from the hours of 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So ours is not a, a an ordinance that is just like theirs, right? Theirs just said, anytime you're sleeping anywhere on public property, it's a problem. And so, um, so this law was challenged, of course, and again, this is 2009, it's taken five years and it's just a bunch of legal wrangling, blah, blah, blah. So we get down to like this final, final moment of you know how do we determine you know what's legal and what's not? And what the Justice Department basically said is this: what you're doing is you're banning a status, right? Legally speaking, you can't ban a status. You can't say it's illegal to be a drug addict, right? That's a status. It's a, you can say it's illegal to possess drugs, but it's not illegal to be a drug addict. And that's kind of what we're talking about, like an action versus a status. And so what they're what the Justice Department is saying is that. What you're doing is not really just banning an action, you're really banning a status, right? It's akin to a, an, an addict or someone who's living in a certain state. It's, it's not, has to, it doesn't have anything to do with their actions. And the reason this is an important distinction to make is because there are questions that come up and that because you say, well, there's lots of things that people have to do to survive. They have to eat, they have to pee. You know, there's all sorts of things that we, we that people do in public that we try to ban or curtail. How far does this go in terms of like what we're allowed to do in public spaces. Um, and and what it, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it, it really is pretty limited, right? It really is pretty limited to a situation where the, a person's whole, the state of not having a home is the problem, not the state of like really having to go to the bathroom, right? That's, that's not like a protected class or an issue. So it will probably be more limited to this case in places that have these kinds of really sweeping laws that say nowhere at no time, this is a problem for them. Again, not a problem for us. Um, so I don't think we're going to be seeing like a major upending of all you know, homelessness policy. Okay. Chuck, you've, you've been writing a lot about homeless I, issues here in San Francisco. I have. As we know, it's a target-rich environment here for economists in San Francisco, so homelessness is a big part of it. And what I would say is this is an example of theory and practice. And in theory, everyone, 
I think every one of us who sees someone, there's a, there's a guy who sleeps by the Chronicle, he doesn't even have a blanket. I mean, I, I see him curled up in a fetal position on the sidewalk, and you say, that guy has got to get some help. But I also know, having gone out with the homeless outreach team, that it's not a myth that you can say to someone, would you like to go to a shelter tonight? And they say, no, I don't want to. I'm going to stay right here. And the reasons are, they may have a partner. They can't have their partner with them in a, in a shelter. They may have a dog. They may want to drink or do drugs. They may not want to get out at 6 in the morning. You know, not long ago in Sacramento, an assemblywoman put forth a bill called Right to Rest. And it was very similar to this, and the idea that you can't restrict someone who's homeless from just resting anywhere. What we found out later was that she came from the mean streets of Pasadena. And what, <laughs> what we would like to do is bring her to San Francisco and say, well, take a look at this, because we've got a much, a much different situation. So I think much has been made of it, but I think Melissa's dead on. It's not going to affect San Francisco. And we're right here, again, theory, practice. We're right here in the practice. And we are, in San Francisco, making an immense effort, $167 million just right off the top for homelessness. So it's not as if we're not trying to, to treat, treat the problem, but it is a very thorny, difficult problem. And with all due respect to the Department of Justice, I don't think you understand the problem. Carson, is this solely a city uh, matter? Is, does the state have does it do anything on homelessness? Is that a role for them? I think it's an area where the state can have a lot more impact. Um, it's been what, a few years now where the mental health uh, surtax has been added on to the, the tax code for the taxing the millionaires in the state. Um, we know from a report just last year or two years ago that that money has been uh, not used uh, properly um, or effectively um, in trying to get more people into mental health facilities and the care that they really do need. Um, and doing that effectively and efficiently mm -hmm. could definitely help a lot of communities and cities uh, because that is a, one of the main causes for the homelessness problem. Absolutely. So it's definitely something that Sacramento could be doing more, paying attention to, making sure the money is spent wisely, um, and helping and being a partner with cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles and many others, Fresno being another one uh, that has a, a big problem. Uh, in trying to f fix the, the situation, fi trying to figure out what is what are the causes and getting rid of those causes. Um, you know, th there was a bill a few uh, years ago that tried to give the homeless rights to essentially property rights to to uh, to the streets. Uh, the, the, Aiding, making it easier to be on the streets is not really the best way to actually fix the problems uh, that these, these people really have, whether it is mental health That was issues. Tom Amiano, right? That yes, was, it was. That was our yeah. guy. It was. The Homeless Bill of Rights. <clears throat> and it didn't go very far nope. uh, because, you know, even the, the most progressive in the state legislature realized, you know, this is not, that's not really the problem. The problem are all these little things uh, that are contributing to, the, to their state. And I think more importantly, it's not the solution. And, I would say one thing, and that is that I don't think, I think it's undeniable that San Francisco is making a switch. And the fact that, you know, a lot of people from the left and the progressive are saying that it's gentrification, I think they're right. It's very difficult for people to live in San Francisco in this day and age. But the people who are moving into San Francisco, and I was just saying in the green room, I went to a neighborhood meeting in Mission Bay where I live. 
And there were a group of people who had purchased million dollar condominiums who were paying four and $5,000 for an apartment. And they were at this meeting with the captain of the Southern Police Station and they were saying, do you realize that there are homeless people in our neighborhood right now? And luckily my wife held me down, but I was gonna get up and where have you people been? We know that, yes, yes. But you wanna talk about a squeaky wheel, those people and you know, I'm, another, I'm a member of Mission Bay, but there are going to be complaints, and they're going to, they're going to stick with it. And I think the, there are fewer and fewer places that are sort of accepted campgrounds for the homeless in San Francisco, and we're going to have some kind of reckoning, and I don't know what it's going to be, but it's, it's definitely... I mean, this, the idea of New York with, the, with these... They have different... New York has set up a series of smaller shelters where you can go and live with your partner and with your dog and take your possessions... Uh, but that's the deal. You're either on the street, and we don't want you on the street, you have to leave, or you can go to the shelter. You can leave, or you can go to the shelter, that's it. And as Trent Rohr from our, our Department of Health says, um, they don't even give you a ride, they just give you a bus schedule and say, this is how you get there. And, you know, and the shelters are also in like the Bronx, and the, right? And the They're shelters not in the, Bronx, in the middle of Market Street. Exactly, exactly. They're not, they're not between the prime shopping area in San Francisco and City Hall as it is in San Francisco. So change is coming. It'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. And we definitely want to be, we want to continue to be compassionate. But it's going to be a very interesting five years. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now back to the Michelle Meow Show. One thing I think, uh, I don't know if this is happening in other cities, but especially drive along Mission underneath the overpasses, you see a lot of tents. Now is this a, is this compassionate outreach? Is this a city? Is this 
social groups, I mean, what's going on with that? Because a lot of those tents look alike. There is a conspiracy theory that someone is handing out tents because, again, Trent Rohr, who is as good as anybody in the United States on homelessness, said, I have never seen so many tents in my life. And if you look, a lot of them are the same tent. A lot of them are blue with an orange rain fly. So I don't know if somebody's giving them out or the guy, we talked to someone the other day and he said Target is selling tents for uh, a low price, so maybe that's it. But um, the urban camping thing is going to be very tough to sustain. And I, I think that we're about to have a reckoning with that and it could get ugly. This is San Francisco, so those tents probably will rent for about $3,500 a month. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about presidential politics because that is uh, pretty exciting to watch these days. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to start with the guy whose name rhymes with Ronald Slump. Uh, we're going to start with <laughs> independent senator Bernie Sanders, who is, at best, he's Democrat-ish. He's not a member of the party, but he's running for its nomination. And he's giving Hillary Clinton a spirited race for votes. Uh, pulled ahead of her in at least one early voting state uh, poll that, that we've all seen. Carson, talk about Sanders' campaign. What, what's uh, its popularity, its challenges? What's he doing? Well, I, I definitely think he is tapping into a, a very serious frustration amongst the uh, progressive left across the country. Mm -hmm. um, they see, you know, Hillary Clinton is the epitome of the establishment, the democratic machine. She's been around forever, so is Bernie Sanders, but he's still, he's very fresh, you know, not really, people really don't, didn't know who he was before he jumped in. Uh, he's saying a lot of things that the, the liberal left really likes, really wants to see really that, eager to see yes, it. yeah, that they've been, you know, pining for for years now. Um, they were hopeful that President Obama would do a lot of these things, and then you know he has to pull back, just given the nature of politics. Uh, but Bernie is saying the things that they want to say. And in many ways, he's kind of the, the liberal uh, version of what you're seeing kind of from the more anti-establishment Republicans. Uh, he can say the things that you know, Hillary Clinton uh, can't say, just like you know, the, the, the Ben Carsons, Ted Cruz's can say the things that Jeb Bush would never say, but can't say either. Um, and so it, it, it's interesting to watch. You know, he's showing a lot of uh, the Clinton campaign's weaknesses across the board. However, I would say I really think that his 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 surge has plateaued. Um, you you kind of see him stalling out in a lot of the recent polls, and he does very well with well-educated white liberals, uh, which is you know in Iowa, New Hampshire, that's who's showing up to the primaries and the caucuses. Once you get down to the South. That's not who's showing up to the Democratic primaries. Um, so he can do well, I think, in pockets of, this, of the country. Minnesota mm -hmm. might be one place, Maine, um, New Hampshire, Vermont, obviously, Massachusetts. Uh, but across the board, uh, he, he doesn't have the staying power, support-wise, at least right now, um, to be able to kind of really do what Obama did to Clinton uh, eight years ago. That said, though, I think it's showing to a lot of people that Clinton's not necessarily the uh, you know, yeah, indomitable force okay. that everyone thought she was going into this race. You're getting a lot of talk now about Biden jumping in, about Gore jumping in. Who's, who's heard from now Gore recently? <laughs> but now he thinks he can get at it. Um, you know, John Kerry just this uh, past weekend said that he's not closing the door on elected politics. John Kerry? Oh um, so, you know, it's, there's a lot of now people thinking, oh, wait it's a minute. It's like Night of the Living Dead. Can we? Can I actually beat Hillary? I think I might be able to. So, um, you know, who knows who actually ends up in? But Bernie's showing that uh, that there's a, a hunkering for this, you know, liberal red meat, if you were. 
Well, my, my method is to read other people and then steal their ideas and make it sound like they're mine. So here's what, <laughs> so one of the things I read today was that, you know, this is very significant. In Iowa and in New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders is actually making a lot of inroads. And the, the Clinton people have to be very worried. But what this person was making the point was, he's not cutting into her base that much. Nationally, she continues to have a very high approval rating in, this, in the 70s. But I think what Carson uh, said is true, which is she seems so inauthentic. I get the impression she would say anything if, if that would help, you know, help the cause. Bernie Sanders is only going to say what Bernie Sanders is going to say. And I, and I think it's a little bit of a Bullworth moment. We kind of like that guy who says those things. And uh, who knows? I mean, if Iowa and New Hampshire go, I mean, if he makes a good showing there, we're going we're gonna to talk about him. But I think he, she's still got the money. She's still got the national reputation. And she's definitely got the organization. It's just, if you could just get over this idea that she's not a real person. <laughs> is that, Little is, issue. Is that sexist? Was that, was that we bad? think you're a robot. Is we that? should work on that. Is that bad to say? No, no, no. It's okay. Uh, yes, I, uh, on behalf of all women, like it's okay. 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 You can say okay. you think okay. she's not authentic. Um, well, here's the thing, though, about Sanders is. You know, I, we're all fascinated by him. But two things. Number one, the idea, the, the importance of winning in Iowa and New Hampshire is that donors will give you money and then you can win other elections elsewhere. Like Sanders, though, because of sort of the nature of what he stands for, is not going to be able to, you know, win in New Hampshire and then all of a sudden Goldman Sachs is going to start giving him money. Like, that's not <laughs> ever going to happen. So it, even if he were to win in one of these early states, it's not clear that he would actually reap the benefits that usually come with winning in one of those early states where you build momentum and you buy more commercials and blah, blah, blah. So, so that's number one. And number two, if you think about the people who are coming to his rallies, a lot of them, um, even though they may not love Hillary Clinton, are going to really hate whatever Republican runs. So if you think about who's ever at his rally, they're, you know, so they're there and they're like, yay, Bernie, but it, like, let's assume she gets the nomination. They're still going to turn out and vote for her because the kind of person who's going to rally for Bernie Sanders is going to be appalled at a Ben Carson or a Ted Cruz. Or, you know, so, so it's not to say that she's going to, you know, that these people are going to turn their backs on her. I think ultimately, um, you know, assuming she does get the nomination, they will turn out for her, even if they have to hold their nose and just be like, I hate this person less, you know, which is how we vote in America, let's face it. Uh, so, you know, so I still think that, that it's not really fatal to her sort of general election to have a good chunk um, rooting for him. And I think there are a, a number of people who are for him who are not antithetical to her. They just, they want to pull her a little more to the left and they want to sort of be right now casting a little bit of a protest vote, but that they will, they will um, sort of fall in line when, when they need to, when, when it comes down to it. What do you make of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders' interactions with the Black Lives Matter movement? We've seen now twice, I think you've all seen this, they got a lot of attention, where uh, events he was going to be speaking at, they weren't his campaign rallies, they were both events held by other people, but both times he was going to speak and they were taken over or interrupted by um, activists from Black Lives Matter, which is a very decentralized organization. It's, it's not like they're all getting orders from uh, Acorn Central, but um, what does this, A, first of all, why are they going after him? I mean, we're talking about a very liberal senator who has been very vocal in his support for civil rights and other things, but B, does this, I mean, just to be the kind of the bloodless 
political question, does this help him? Does this hurt him? What, what do potential voters see when they see him standing there and someone else is taking the mic at, his, at an event? Well, I think, number one, they're do because they can, frankly, yeah. at yeah. his events. Like, the security is <laughs> just, just not that good. Like, no ropes. You know, <laughs> they're kind of messy <laughs> events. And, like, they tried to come to a Hillary Clinton event and they couldn't get past security. I mean, like, let's face it. I mean, the, the part of the thing about Bernie Sanders' events is that they're just a little more freewheeling and you can kind of get up there and comedy. <laughs> can you imagine? Like Hillary relinquishing the microphone to Black Lives Matter, like no, <laughs> that is not going to happen. So not not to them, not to anyone. Uh, so you know, so it, part of it just is is a matter of sort of there's an opportunity and yeah. there's this person and when they go up there, what they and they did it, they got huge amounts of press. So it's like you sort of find the the weak part of the fence and you can get over there and sort of and get in there and get and and really increase their message. Now after they interrupted those. Sanders events or those other events that he was at, they were able to get a private conference with Hillary Clinton. Now, it's not clear that that would have happened without that kind of coverage. So it's not to say that they were crazy for doing it. A lot of people question, you know, why are you targeting this, you know, this guy who's probably, you know, incredibly like the most sympathetic um, candidate for you. Um, they were able to leverage that to get in to have bigger conversations with other candidates. So, so it, it does have some, I think, some rationale to it, uh, even if, you know, ultimately it's you know people disagree with with their aims or whatever but but the, the real answer to why Bernie Sanders is because they can and I would take just a moment and put yourself in Bernie Sanders shoes I mean he's he's called himself a socialist so this person takes over the microphone in, in a split second really this happened in a split second we're having a rally we're talking I'm up here I'm not up here now someone else is up here Okay, Bernie, what do you, what's your politically correct position to take in this? To take the microphone back from Black Lives Matter? That doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound very socialistic. To let them take over your rally? Well, Donald Trump said that was kind of weak. I, you know, I don't know what you do in that situation, but you've got to make a decision right now. And he let him speak and took the consequences, but... This is politics. That's the, the problem is you don't get a chance to go backstage and meet with your handlers and say, you know, it would be a good idea. So if we could do the, we'll do the Black Lives Matter, but we'll mention, you know, you've got to make a decision right now. And he let him go. And now he has to say, is, was that a good idea or a bad idea? But his core values would be let him go. So are you authentic or not, Bernie? Uh, the reason I even wanted to get into that is I'm kind of curious about the unintended effects of basing your run on the activist wing of the party, consider another thing. So Lawrence Lessig is a Harvard Law professor who's been an advisor to Bernie Sanders and is now running as a protest cam a campaign for president, basically focused purely on uh, campaign finance reform. He says he'll get in office, get that law passed, and then he'll quit. Um, I'm not saying Lessig would win or could even win a single primary. I'm just suggesting it kind of muddles the message when you know, your own advisors, your, your natural allies are out there, and, and it makes Sanders look less like the captain of a movement and more like a passenger on the boat. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think it's going to do too much to him, mainly because he, he's in the spotlight now. Yeah. Um, it would take a very concerted effort for the, the, the mass media to all of a sudden make Lessig a, a big deal. Yeah. Um, and he's... The, this newer professor is also, I believe, the founder of the Mayday Pack, which is trying to get rid of PACs. 
Um, so you know that he's not going to have a lot of money. That should have been um, called the SOS pack. Right. <laughs> so he, he won't have the resources. Um, he'll have even fewer resources than Bernie Sanders will. Um, and right now, Bernie Sanders is the, the other person. You know, he's the one polling, and the, the, the media really follows the polls um, that then kind of creates the polls, and then so it's kind of like a circular iterative process. Um, so, yeah, it's problematic probably from a grand standpoint, people who are really paying attention to it all, mm -hmm. but for the most part, the, the average voter probably isn't. I just I love that Lessig is in the race. It just sort of everything comes. So Lessig, you know, his thing is campaign finance, right? He's a, a crusader on it. I mean, he's got other issues as well, but he wants a constitutional convention to rewrite the constitution in certain places to 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 make it more democratic. And he's his whole sort of thing is getting rid of PACs and and making democracy more accessible and less this oligarchy that he believes it's become. So we've got him on the democratic side, and then on the other side we have like a Donald a Ronald Strump. <laughs> who, uh, who, we'll who, 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 let's face it, is really just, just cut out the middleman. Like, we don't need, you know, Koch brothers giving you money if the Koch brother could just run, yeah. right? Like, let's just forget it. Like, forget the candidate. Let's just make the donor, like, the candidate and, like, just get to it. So on one side, we've got this, like, thing in its purest form. And on the other side, we've got this person who's so fired up about it that he's, that that's his entire campaign. And it seems like this history of campaign finance and speech uh, and Supreme Court decisions have brought us to this moment where we've got this, you know, these sort of two um, distilled versions of, of what's happened to us on either side of the, of the debate, at least. And so it's just, I'm totally fascinated by how that's Sort of come into being in this in this year's election. Okay. You said versions. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, uh, I'm, fast, I'm kind of fascinated by the Trump thing. Trump? Just well, excuse me, but um, after that debate, so many people wrote, "Okay, he was exposed. That's it. Thanks a lot. See you later, Trump." And I think the media has a lesson to learn here, which is we're gonna, we'll tell you what's important, we'll tell you what's happening. And I saw, I heard on the radio, I saw many things that said Trump was exposed. And instead, his, his poll numbers went up. And I'd add that Carly Fiorina, who was not even in the, on the stage, got a tremendous boost from the media, and now the self-fulfilling prophecy is that she's now making a run, that she's becoming important. I think the media is gonna have to decide you know, I don't think Trump has a, a prayer in the world of being, of being president of the United States, but it's time to step back and refocus and figure out what are we really saying here. I, I, there was some, it wasn't The Onion, but it was some like satirical website that had, that the headline was like, Trump punches none, sets puppy on fire, pull, rock, pull number skyrocket. Like, there's nothing he can do. Just stop. Every time he does something, people go, is, he, is it now? Right, is it going right, to happen? Are people right. going to, no, no, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. After John McCain, everyone was like, oh, for sure. No. <laughs> nope. Not a bit. Not a bit. I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know what it's going to take, but it's going to have to be worse than none weird? punching, yeah. apparently. <laughs> we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. 
ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Carson? It's defying all political science, the theory, everything right now. Um, he, he just is. Every single, you know, again, pundit, political scientist, everything just looks at him. There's, there's no way that this can continue going. Um, and it, it's confusing the hell out of me, actually, like what's going on. But there's obviously some sort of really visceral anger on the right um, about kind of what uh, any of their elected officials are doing. You know, way back when in 2010, a lot after 2010, all everything was written about. You know, the go the governors, uh, the Republican governors are leading the way. Uh, don't look to Washington, look to the states because the governors are leading the way. And it really seemed like the the anti-establishment anger was really turned towards Washington. But now what you're seeing with all these very accomplished governors who are running on the Republican side, they're not really catching fire when everyone thought they would be. So it doesn't seem that it's just Washington, it just seems that it's anyone who kind of was at the helm of any government is now being punished by the right. And uh, I just don't see if they continue down this path, which you know, political science says they won't, uh, but, and history says they won't, but if they continue down, down this path, it could be very detrimental to the, the party, let alone to the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. Now, one, one of our podcast listeners emailed me to say that we've, obviously in a number of these programs, spent a lot of time talking about Donald Trump, the phenomenon, um, but we haven't talked much about what his platform is. So I want to go into that. Now, first of all, you can't really blame us for not going in depth on his policies. 
I looked at his, his campaign website. This is an official campaign website. When you click on the tab for positions, there's one. <laughs> Seriously, there's just I one. I am the greatest. Immigration reform. <laughs> and he, he lays out his immigration, and, and you know that build a wall, uh, make Mexico pay for right. it, yeah. uh, you know, enforce lo right. immigration yeah. laws that are already on the books. Do we know anything else more about what his actual policies are? I mean, well, he, he doesn't like Megyn Kelly, and uh, he's giving kids help. Yeah. That's under the Megyn Kelly tab, like, on yeah, his right. website. Yeah. Um, well, here's the thing. I mean, the interesting thing about the debate was that almost there was almost no dissension among any of the candidates. Like, I mean, there was a lot of attacks, and people, you know, got you know a little nasty with each other, and okay. But, but aside from Rand Paul and, and some foreign policy issues, Everyone agreed on everything. It was, oh, he, he said, I'm, I'm going to build, you know, I'll build that wall and Mexico pay for it. And Marco Rubio's like, yes, and ankle monitors. And it was like, <laughs> okay, let's just, we're going to keep building on that. Like, no one's going to take issue yeah. with the wall. We're yeah. just going to say what else we're going to do. Right. So um, actually his stances, um, you know, wrapped in, you know, interesting delivery as they are, are pretty well in line with the Republican Party. He was at the debate. He said, I'm against the Iran nuclear deal. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm against immigration or I want to, you know, clamp down on immigration. Okay. Um, he said, you know, we got to get tougher on China on trade. Okay. I just, so, so, I mean, if you sort of peel it all away, there really isn't a lot of daylight between most of those candidates on their, their actual stances. And I think that's one of the things that's baffling people is the fact that um, how are people still supporting him? Well, if you look, if you get down to it, I mean, he's kind of pretty well, you're your standard Republican in a lot of ways. I think he also has the advantage of not caring, you know, because I mean, <laughs> oh, that, yeah. that very first question at the Fox debate, would you take a pledge not to run against someone? I think they thought that was the gotcha of all gotchas. And I think Donald Trump thought, this is great. I'm going to be the only person in the whole thing. And, you know, I'll explain it later. You know, I don't, I don't know how it all works out, but I'll explain it later. He loves the attention. He loves being that person. And I think we're tired of inauthentic candidates and politicians. And he does tap into something. Just like the, I don't agree with him, but I'm glad somebody's finally saying something. One, one big caveat, though, basically no one's spent any money yet in any of these early states. Some of the, some of the super PACs have to kind of boost their, their candidate, but no one's really spent any money attacking anyone else yet. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump has a very long history of really very liberal positions across the board, mm -hmm. um, not to mention the fact that he's given to Hillary Clinton, the, who will... Like most likely be the nominee. Just so um, she'd come to his wedding. Just so he should come to his wedding. But still, I mean, there, there's a lot of things for these the Republican base to start hearing and saying, wait a minute, even if he does want to build that wall, like, I mean, as Melissa said, most, most of the other candidates do also. So why do I want to support him when he also wants universal health care, which most Democrats running actually have historically never supported, so besides Bernie. Um, so, I mean, there, there is time left for the Trump ticking time bomb to <laughs> go away. Okay. Well, let, let me ask the audience, by a show of hands, how many of you watched that recent GOP debate on Fox? Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, it was the most watched debate, like, since they started watching debates. I mean, it was, right. it was right. huge. Now, what did you think about Donald Trump's back and forth with Fox News Channel during and after the debate? The, you know, the whole accusations that Fox was out to get him, and then he and Fox made up. Um, first of all, 
is it a news organization's job to have a feud and make up with people or to, you know, Chuck, does this mean they're well, not fair and balanced? Well, first of all, is it a news organization? Let's start with that. Uh, <laughs> I thought their questions were pretty tough, I have to say. They were, they were better than I thought. The, the start of it was not good at all. But <clears throat> So our question is, what? How far, how far did this go? Yeah. You know, I think that um, the safety factor is so strong in politicians that we're having a difficult time, and I think Bernie Sanders is, is tapping into this as well, that we'd like to see some other people. I had a very weird, this, is a, this sounds a little random, but I had a very weird experience two weeks ago when I went to cover the uh, fires up in, in uh, the, Rocky, uh, the Rocky fire. Uh, Governor Brown showed up, and uh, he gave a press conference, and I wrote a story about it, and his people were on me immediately. And they said, I cannot believe that you did not mention the fact that Governor Brown was responding to the Republican debate when he said, California's on fire, what the hell are you gonna do about it? And I said, well, the rest, the whole story talked about you know, global warming and how concerned you are about, yes, but you don't realize that he was responding to the presidential debate. And in fact, he sent a letter to every member of that debate. It just made me think that Governor Brown was very interested in having presidential and Jerry Brown in the same sentence you just never know in a crazy situation like this. <laughs> call me a conspiracy theorist, but oh I'm my just God. wondering if a lot of people don't see an opening. You know, if this, if this isn't a very fraught election with nobody taking it. Oh, my God. The look on your face, Melissa. I'm, I'm sorry for the podcast. Please, Lord. <laughs> Biden, Gore, Brown. Like, Carrie, Yeah, let's Carrie. get... Dukakis back up there. Let's get, is Mondale still alive? Let's get him. Good grief. Um, they were hard on him in the debate. I mean, that's a fact. But if you look at things like, I remember there was one question for Marco Rubio and it was like, Marco Rubio, what would you do to help small businesses? <laughs> what? What kind of mm -hmm. layup is that? Like, and he was like, well, I'll tell you my three point plan that I've been practicing for two days in a hotel room. Okay. <laughs> da, 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 da. And it was just like, you're killing me. Uh, so they, they, they were hard on Trump. And I'm not saying that they were harder on him than some of the other front runners. But, um, but they definitely asked him really tough questions. And, and again, I'm not saying it was, it was even a good idea for him to be such a baby about it. Um, but, you know, when you're the front runner, you're going to get hard questions. But, but if you look back at the, you know, sort of the list of, like, who got asked what, he got asked consistently really, really difficult questions. Again, maybe rightfully so, but but I understood at the end when he was like, wait a minute, they were hard on me. What was not cool is that he was really mad at Megyn Kelly. She was only one of three people who asked really hard questions. There were two other dudes who were also asking hard questions who, you know, also yeah. maybe should have been part of that, that criticism. Um, but, but I mean, but to be fair, I mean, they clearly, there were some candidates who got a lot easier questions than others. I think if you, if you were to go back and if you really hate yourself enough to go back and rewatch it, <laughs> <laughs> take note like of, of how easy or hard the questions were. Except John Kasich, the Ohio governor. What? He got probably the hardest question was trying, asking him how to defend his Medicaid expansion in the state of Ohio when you're standing there on stage with Republicans who've railed against Obamacare since and day one. Very vocal. I thought he gave a good answer, yes. though. Yeah, he gave a fantastic answer. And he also got a gay marriage question. I mean, yep. he really one of the only ones on the stage. And he answered that 
very well as also, where yep. he showed true compassion and understanding, but also kind of stayed true to his, his personal beliefs, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very difficult line to, yeah. to, 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 uh, to follow, especially in a Republican debate with thousands of Republicans sitting there in the audience with you. Well, I hate to admit that Connor's making sense in a Republican debate that was just nonsense, but he could, that guy could be the dark horse. I, I feel like he's got a lot of potential. He has a lot of, he has a wide-ranging view. You know, someone told me, though, and it's worth Googling, apparently he has a terrible temper. And it's come up more than once, and it could be, I think Donald Trump is going to implode on his own. I don't think it'll be questions. He said it, he said it to Maureen Dowd, you know, in Sunday's New York Times. I go too far. I know I do. I, he gets so carried away with being clever that he, you know, the Rosie O'Donnell thing was kind of funny, but then when we went to the, you know, Megyn Kelly thing, not so funny. I think that'll happen, but I, I think he's got a chance. I think, I think that guy could be a, could be a contender and, and maybe a dark horse. He, he's going to have to raise some money, but I think that could be a, that could be a real factor. Jeb. Jeb Bush needs to watch out for him in New Hampshire. Oh, and oh my God! It, if he—he's—he's he's the—he's the biggest threat to Jeb Bush in New Hampshire. Um, yeah, Jeb, Jeb Bush is calling himself the tortoise because of the tortoise of the hair. <laughs> I think he looks like a tortoise. Come on, Jeb, <laughs> have a cup of coffee or something. You've got to. <laughs> You've got to project here a little bit. Come on. That's true. He doesn't look like he's having much fun. No. You know, like, it's, like, no. it's like, do you want? Are you? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> You can't say that on NPR. <laughs> Which also is not much fun. But I just mean, like, he's just always like, well, I guess I have to be here. Okay, I'm just going to sort of do this thing. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't, I mean, the Lord knows certain people want it maybe too much. But, um, but he really, you know, he just kind of looks like sometimes like he's not really enjoying it or, you know, having any, you know, or has this burning desire to be president. And I think that that's okay to say, I really want to be president. I mean, one of the things that bugs me about people when they criticize Hillary Clinton, when they caricature her as being this incredibly ambitious person, I'm like, what's wrong with that? I want somebody who wants to be president, mm -hmm. to be the president. I don't want to have to drag somebody into the White House to run the country. Uh, but but yeah, he does, he says, does seem to lack a little bit. She may have an, an authenticity problem, but he, he has like an enthusiasm issue, I think. Well, I I would just say, this is not a good look, okay? <laughs> Straighten your glasses, Jeb. Come on. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence 
discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Okay, Melissa, you, you brought up uh, Hillary again. We have a question. How would the Democratic primary change if Hillary is indicted? <laughs> For what? Not at all. The voice yeah, of the people. Yeah. I just read the question. Uh, well, <laughs> well, to be fair, um, an indictment is not, uh, you know, a, a conviction. So I mean, split hairs here about being indicted, you know. Um, we got at least a dozen members of Congress who've been indicted for various <laughs> things. Um, you know, would it be a problem? Yes. Um, having said that, I mean, she really has the money and the endorsements. Like, there's really people, oh, maybe Biden, maybe Gore, uh, maybe Kerry, for God's sakes. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. She has really sucked up all the oxygen from the party regular folks, uh, again, in terms of money and endorsements. So there's not a lot left there. If, if something terrible were to happen and she were to get indicted, I think the party would hold, hold its nose and, and go for it, partly because whoever is going to be the Republican, if it's, if it's Ted Cruz or Ben Carson or Donald Trump, she's still even indicted. <laughs> <laughs> I think for a lot of people, a better alternative. So... No, I don't necessarily think that that would be fatal. And it's not a sad thing that we say, like, an that indictment, is, ah, that, not that as bad is, as, like, a, you know, money laundering, you know. We, we, we it's not as bad as that guy with the hooker. That's not yeah, that bad. Yeah. We, would, we would call that a ringing endorsement, then. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even indicted, she's better. That's good. Well, let, let's uh, try to get in a few more short things before we go to the news quiz. Um, I know some folks think it's too early to talk about the 2016 <laughs> election. So you're going to really love this. Uh, let's talk briefly about the political landscape in California for the 2018 election. There's, and, and it's worth talking about because for a while it was looking like this was a foregone conclusion. Gavin Newsom was the inevitable candidate. Um, Carson, stuff's happening there. What, what's going on? I just start off, I'm just amazed about the lack of activity on the 2016 front on the U.S. Senate uh, race. Uh, the first time that uh, one of California's two U.S. Senate seats has been open in nine, or, uh, sorry, uh, 20 plus years. Um, so it's it just a lot of pent up um, energy and enthusiasm in a very deep Democratic bench and a very significant, safe uh, Democratic state. Uh, so I'm amazed by that. But what you're starting to see now is everything all those people who might have gone after Boxer's seat are now turning their attentions to 2018 and looking at you know, Jerry Brown being termed out, the possibility of Dianne Feinstein retiring um, in 2018, which means you have an open Senate seat then. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems like for everyone, 2016 was a little bit too soon to kind of get everything running, up and running. Um, so they kind of want to put on the brakes and kind of 
get out there, fundraise, kind of feel out the networks, and kind of run for 2018. So what you're seeing is, you know, Gavin has already jumped in. We know what he's doing. Um, he's, he's fundraising like crazy to try to try to scare people off, but it yeah. doesn't seem to be working because you have Steve Wesley, a former state controller, um, billionaire from Silicon Valley, uh, jumping in. He doesn't need the fundraise. He can self-fund. Tom Steyer is definitely making a move. Uh, he's been making a lot of uh, plays on the gas price issue and now in income inequality. Again, another billionaire who can self-fund. He doesn't have to, to fundraise. Um, who else? Uh, John Chung, the state treasurer, has now announced that he is running, and he has a lot more state um, statewide experience than Gavin Newsom does, so he is definitely a threat to, to Newsom. You have Antonio Villaraigosa, you have possibly Eric Garcetti, you have Sandy, um, Sarah, Cheryl Sandberg. Uh, so the list just keeps on going on and on and on. <laughs> and you're like, wow, it, people really want to be governor and they do not want to go to Washington, D.C. <laughs> like, they choose Sacramento over Washington, D.C. So um, it, it's quite amazing. And even on the Republican side, Ashley Swearingen, the mayor of Fresno, Kevin Falconer, the mayor of San Diego, mm-hmm. Uh, two very, two could be two very viable candidates, especially in the whole top two situation where you have, you know, six, seven, eight Rep- uh, Democrats running, could kind of create some exciting times uh, in November, uh, to, or sorry, June 2018, whether, you know, it's uh, whether a Democrat can make it in. On uh, the much shorter horizon, time-wise, um, San Francisco has an election coming up this fall. Mayor Lee, of course, is He's got some opposition, but I challenge you to name any of them. Are any of them here? An, yes. <laughs> okay. If you are, I didn't mean that as an insult. Well, we, we talked about this one time, and we were saying, oh, there's no opposition. And one guy's like, I'm running. <laughs> oh, my um, God. I'm so sorry. So, okay, good. They're not here. But, but I have to He add, really has, like, no real opposition. We, we know the nude guy's not here, at least. We've the naked been, guy, the yes. The naked guy's not here, so okay. Okay. Well, I have to ask. Uh, what did you make of the accusations by the lawyer for Shrimp Boy um, that Mayor Ed Lee was on the take? Um, okay. Does that have any political implications, or do you not take that? Wow. Um, so I don't know if you read the, you know, I, I, you guys are all smarty pants, so you might have read the, the legal filing by um, Shrimp Boy Chow's lawyer. Um, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. And and I'm not saying that Trump wasn't railroaded or whatever, but but legally speaking, so you, the, the argument was selective prosecution. Basically it said, you know, everybody's on the take and you just went after my guy and that is why my guy should, the whole thing should be dismissed. Like dismiss all the charges because you selectively prosecuted my guy. The problem is selective prosecution is based on the constitutionally protected things, right? So if there are 10 people involved in a conspiracy and you only prosecute like the black guy, then that's an issue. That's a selective prosecution, right? And you can you can actually move to have something dismissed because that's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution. But it's things like race, gender, ethnicity. That's kind of the grounds for selective prosecution that you have to assert. So in, in this filing, he says, my client was selectively, selectively prosecuted because he's awesome. Because he is so great. I actually have the quote right here. He is a real life superhero. From the thing. Um, You're like, that is not a legal grounds for selective prosecution. (laughs) Like, sir. (laughs) 
Um, so, I mean, obviously it wasn't on the grounds of gender or, or, or ethnicity. I mean, you had other, you know, Chinese persons who, like, like Ed Lee, who's alleging got off scot-free. So he, he couldn't name, like, any, you know, any actual protected ground. So he just said, you know, my clan is just the greatest. And that is why he was, that's why he was chosen. You had to knock him down because he was, I swear to God, he was delivering services to the community that the government couldn't. Which, you know, arguably, <laughs> that's illegal. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the actual argument. So it was like legally speaking, I mean, everyone was like, "Oh my goodness, this you know this crazy you know look at this filing." But it was like legally speaking, like it's nonsense. And I'm I was like, I'm not even sure like the other side's gonna even like file something in opposition. Sometimes things are so crazy that you just go, you know, I don't need to oppose that. Like it's just kind of <laughs> it's kind of its own thing. Like I'm just gonna let the judge deal with that. I'm not not gonna get involved. So um, so I'm not even sure if the prosecution even like filed anything. The, on the issue of Mayor Lee, um, there were some quotes in there from wiretaps where people were saying, Ed Lee knows about this. So there was, not, there was nothing that directly implicates Ed Lee. And I'm not saying that there does, nothing exists that implicates Ed Lee. I'm not saying he's you know, a choir boy, but I'm saying in the filing, there was no, it was all a lot of hearsay. It was like Ed Lee, Ed Lee knows, and people were like invoking his name and kind of name dropping, frankly. Um, and so, but but that was as close as it came. It didn't really get to any sort of direct evidence of that. So even though like it was it was all over the news. Oh, they you know they allege Ed Lee dirty. Did it, there was really Ed Lee's campaign was like eh, and because there really wasn't much to it. Again, in the in the filing, whatever investigation is going to lead wherever it goes. But but as far as the, the what they were able to produce on the wiretap, there was really there was really not a lot there. This whole thing seemed to be really blown out of proportion. Okay. So I, I can't believe we've gone this long without mentioning that Melissa is possibly going to be arguing in front of the Supreme Oh, Court. my God. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. That's it. Melissa I'm going to kill you. What I, you know, my, and I'm not an attorney by any stretch of the imagination, but my sense of shrimp boy, which was my nickname in high school, if I could just... Uh, <laughs> I can see that. You know, it, look, it doesn't look good for shrimp boy. I mean, he's got a lot of things going on, but the fact is the FBI cast... In the, in the mildest terms, a very wide net. I mean, they went after Joe Montana. They, they, tried to, they tried to get him to take. So if you're a shrimp boy, you better just throw as much stuff up in the air as mm -hmm. you possibly can. And that's my non-legal impression of what's, of what's going on. That's pretty good. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, he's, I'm sure he's got some real problems. And I don't know that Ed Lee is one of them. I think he's, you know, I, the, the fact that Ed Lee hardly reacted, I think, was, was probably shrewd. Okay. Well, uh, before we do the news question, quiz, I have to say, lots of great questions. Thank you. Obviously, I didn't get to all that many of them. Um, but someone did submit a question for you. So I'm going to ask you. They wanted us to take a poll of everyone here. So raise your hand if you think Bernie Sanders will still be in the race after Iowa and New Hampshire. In other words, he's in it for a while. Well, listen, we're going to have more news quiz questions and a lot more to discuss on Tuesday, September 15th in Palo Alto when we return to Silicon Valley. Then we'll be back in San Francisco in early October. Thank you to our panel, Carson, Bruno, Melissa, Griffin-Kane, and Chuck Levius. Thanks to all of you here, everyone watching us on TV and listening online. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.